Good morning, Incarnation. In our gospel lesson today, as Dana just set forth, we come to one of the most extravagant, one of the most intimate, and yes, one of the most scandalous displays of devotion in all of Holy Scripture. As Mary of Bethany stoops down at the feet of Jesus, breaking an alabaster jar of costly perfume, pouring it out upon his head and feet, and wiping it up with her own hair. It was extravagant because this pure nard, an import from the Himalayan mountains of Arabia and northern India, was worth a year's wages. And it was scandalous because here we find this young woman fawning at the feet of Jesus. And not only unbinding her hair, which itself was culturally taboo, but using her long hair, which is her glory, according to St. Paul, as if it was a servant's towel, wiping his feet, anointing him like a king, and truly adoring him like a bride. And all of this happened right out in the open. I mean, can you imagine the tension in that room? Indeed, like King David dancing with all his might before the ark of the Lord, this is a picture of full-hearted adoration. Mary is too locked in, too fervent to care what else is going on around her. And I think it's fair to say that criticism of this action was inevitable as we shall see. But Jesus responds by explaining the deeper meaning behind this extraordinary act of devotion, a meaning that was likely unconscious, except by some sort of like pious instinct, even for Mary herself. She's not only using the oil of royalty to anoint Jesus as king, but more specifically, Jesus says that Mary was preparing him for burial passion of Christ was finally at hand. Salvation, salvation history has reached its climax. And from here on out, every action of every human being is imbued with a significance beyond all human reckoning. Please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to John 12. It's on page 898. And let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning we would enter into Mary of Bethany's school of worship. And Lord, we would sit at her feet, even as she sat at your feet, and learn from her what worship looks like. We ask you to do this in us, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, this story takes place in a little town called Bethany. It's just a few hundred yards outside of Jerusalem, where these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived, and where Jesus had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, In response, this dinner was being held there in honor uh, just six days before the Passover. Now, based on the other snippets of these three siblings in the Gospels, we should definitely say that John 12 portrays them true to form, right? So we have Martha uh, serving, 
uh, as usual in verse 2, Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus, and Mary was just like too in awe of Jesus to focus on anything else. Now, it's worth noting that the Mary of this passage is St. Mary of Bethany, not Mary Magdalene, not Mary the mother of Jesus, and not the sinful woman of a similar but unrelated story in Luke 7. This specific story is is repeated in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, uh, and we're given extra details, such as uh, the alabaster flask that held the perfume being broken. Mark 14, 3, and that it was poured on Jesus's head, Matthew 26, 7, and not just his feet, and the fact that the dinner took place at the house of Simon the leper, who apparently was also healed by Jesus. So there's just thanksgivings all around here. Now, John's gospel gives the most detail, including naming Mary and Judas, but in all three tellings, the anointing occurs in Bethany, right before the Passover and Passion of Christ. In fact, all three accounts are preceded by the plot to kill Jesus. So it's a kind of a preparation being made by the Sanhedrin for the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God. Now this sense of context is crucial for understanding Jesus' interpretation of Mary's action, and for us getting a sense of God being at work in a providential way behind the free actions of human beings. As we can see at the end of John chapter 11, the plot to kill Jesus was escalated by him raising Lazarus from the dead only a few hundred yards from Jerusalem. So Lazarus, from this point on, became a kind of living icon for the power of Jesus, And things were getting out of hand by this point, so much so that we see in John 12, 10, out of an extreme impulse to hide the evidence, that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As Peter pointed out last week, the fervor surrounding Jesus was not only a religious matter, it was a political problem. The Jews were living in enemy-occupied territory, and they certainly did not want to raise the ire of their Roman oppressors. Therefore, the most expedient solution was to put Jesus to death. So Caiaphas, the high priest, responds in verse 49, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here Caiaphas was actually prophesying about the atoning death of Jesus. As John mysteriously observes in a kind of editorial note in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, says John, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words... God was faithful to work through the God-ordained office of high priest, even though the man that occupied it was a scoundrel. And just as these impious words of Caiaphas in John 11 meant more than he realized, so the pious actions of Mary in John 12 meant more than she realized. Jesus says in John 12, 7, that Mary has been keeping this costly perfume, which was likely like a a family heirloom or possibly her dowry, for the day of his burial. 
The Greek construction of John 12, 7 is confusing, especially since verse 5 implies that she has already used it all. But Jesus' similar words in Matthew 26, 12 make it clearer. He says, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So in this way, Mary unwittingly prepares Jesus for his crucifixion less than a week later. Rod Whitaker comments that there is no reason to think that Mary knew the import of what she was doing any more than Caiaphas knew what he was saying. The people around Jesus are being caught up in the climax of salvation history. They're acting for their own reasons, yet they are players in a drama they do not understand, doing and saying things with significance beyond their imagining. Indeed, this this spikenard oil was so costly that it was rarely used on anyone living and walking around except in the case of royalty. I mean, it was sort of like anointing someone with diamonds. And the smell was so potent that it would linger for more than a week. So one of the ways that you could recognize a king in the ancient world was not just that they dressed like a king or or maybe had a crown or a scepter, but they actually smelled like a king. And in view of that fact, and in view of the fact that a whole bottle was poured out upon Jesus just a few days, just one day, in fact, before Palm Sunday, it's worth meditating on the whole passion of Christ with this new factor in mind. For example, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the next day to loud shouts of Hosanna to the King of Israel... He smelled like a king. When Jesus was identified in the dark and arrested, he smelled like a king. When Jesus was asked by a bewildered Pontius Pilate in John 19.33, are you the king of the Jews? He smelled like a king. And when Jesus was being beaten and scourged, and finally crucified with a plaque affixed over his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, he very likely still smelled like a king. Glory. Glory to Jesus Christ, the King of kings. Amen? I ask you, beloved, is there a story in the world more deeply resonant than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say not, because in all these things, there's a cryptic providence at work, is there not? Undergirding the schemes and free actions of man, we see it undergirding the prophecy of Caiaphas, the piety of Mary, as we have shown, and perhaps nowhere else do we see this in the gospel more clearly than the figure of Judas Iscariot. So let's jump back into the drama of our central text from John 12 with Mary of Bethany at the feet of Jesus, her hair unbound and matted into oily clumps against her cheeks, looking like a hot mess, her scandalous praise being poured out before a room of mostly men. It was as unseemly as it was unavoidable. Verse 3 says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you smell the aroma? Can you imagine 
the shock of what was going on. As N.T. Wright puts it, we can feel the tension crackling in the air. And into this most vulnerable of moments, that ancient accuser of souls steps in and speaks through Judas. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And how sensible this rebuke seems, if we're honest enough to admit it. Indeed, in Matthew's account, rather than singling Judas out, we find a shared sense of indignation among many of the disciples. Sometimes the accusations of the devil seem sensible, do they not? You're not fit to go to church today after the argument that you had with your spouse. That seems very sensible. You're only raising your hands in worship to draw attention to yourself. You're not worthy to lead a Bible study after all you've done. It's very plausible. You're not worthy of forgiveness. Very true. So just give up and stop coming around. In fact, just give up. Hold on, what? (laughs) The good news, brothers and sisters, is that our true judge is not the accuser of souls. Our true judge is also our redeemer. Listen to the final prayer of Good Friday. The service, we, we pray this prayer at the end of our Good Friday service every year. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So the question is not whether the accusations seem plausible to us or how we would respond for ourselves. The question is how our Redeemer would respond on our behalf. And how does Jesus respond here in Mary's case? He begins by rebuking the accusing spirit within Judas in verse 11. Jesus said, leave her alone. In Matthew 26, 13, he says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this is a prophecy that continues to be fulfilled even as we gather here together this morning. So rather than being shamed for her vulnerable deed in Jesus' economy, Mary is perpetually honored. Jesus says, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Mark 14, 6. Beloved, is there something beautiful that you want to do for Jesus? Something sacrificial? Maybe it's something that would be public or unavoidable. Maybe you sense the Lord calling you to make a lavish gift, like giving a car to someone in need. Maybe he's calling you to take in a Ukrainian refugee or adopt a child 
But as you're sensing the Lord's call, you're also sensing the enemy's rebuke in various ways close at hand. Don't listen to it, saints. When a gift is given in love, like Mary gives here, no one can take it from you. Do what the Lord Jesus is calling you to do and let him deal with the accusations. But we still haven't heard Jesus' answer to Judas's million-dollar question, so to speak. 300 denarii. This is indeed 300 days' wages. And minus all the Sabbaths and feast days, that's a whole year of hard labor. Wouldn't this have been better used for charity for the poor than on one wasteful act of devotion to Jesus? To this, Jesus replies in verse 8, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And this response is certainly surprising. Perhaps we weren't expecting Jesus to give Judas a high five for remembering the poor, but we weren't expecting this. Doesn't Jesus usually advocate for the poor and against frivolity? So what's going on here? Let me begin with two theories that I don't agree with. The first is that the Gospel of John is more spiritual and therefore less concerned with the tangible needs of the poor than the other Gospels. The problem with this theory is that not only does Jesus say essentially the same thing in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, but here Judas is actually specifically called out for his hypocrisy. He said this, John 12, 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In other words, by presenting Judas here as a kind of anti-example, by exposing his empty virtue signaling, he implies that, Jesus, that Christians ought to have the opposite of what Judas had, which is a sincere concern about the poor. Amen? The second theory that doesn't work uh, is that perhaps Jesus is speaking about like the relative value of spending money to honor the dead versus charity for the poor. Giving dignity to our lost loved ones is indeed a biblical value. In fact, Genesis devotes an entire chapter to Abraham's burial of his wife, Sarah. But even this value, saints, is relativized in the call of Jesus Christ. In Luke 9, for example, Jesus called a man to follow him, and the man replied, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And Luke continues, And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 59 through 62. So the point is not that we should sort of like absolutize one value over another, charity for the poor, honoring the dead, or family bonds, because all these things are important in the kingdom of God, Amen. Likewise, in Jesus' day, there was great love for the temple in Jerusalem, and that was a good thing. But he declared that one greater than the temple is here. The point is 
that there is only one absolute value in the kingdom of God, and that is devotion to the king himself. Those who have best loved the poor guys are those who have best loved Jesus. Those who have best loved, the best mothers and fathers, the best spouses and siblings I know are those who guard the primacy of Jesus in their lives. As C.S. Lewis famously quipped, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Now that being said, I, I think historically speaking, it's fair to say that there's always been a particular temptation among Christians to absolutize love for the poor. When St. Francis of Assisi died in the 13th century, he left behind tens of thousands of Franciscan friars and sisters that he had inspired to live lives of evangelical preaching and voluntary poverty. But less than 100 years after Francis, some of his followers went beyond their master. They began to teach that all Christians should live in voluntary poverty, free from jobs and families and politics, essentially, that all Christians should become Franciscans. And the church at that time wisely said no to that. In G.K. Chesterton's excellent little biography of St. Francis, he notes, quote, Francis had something in him of what makes for a founder of a religion. Now, for G.K. Chesterton, that's not a good thing. The upshot is that certain Franciscans were willing to let the Franciscan spirit escape from Christendom. But the problem with that was the church could not include all, the church, excuse me, could include all that was good in the Franciscans, but the Franciscans could not include all that was good in the church. So even love for the poor can become its own kind of idol, turning us inward like the Pharisees. And as one preacher put it, anything in this world that you turn into an ultimate value will turn on you. Now turning back to the scriptures, I give a further nuance to say that usually the way that it works is that we love Jesus precisely through loving the poor, right? Whatever you do to the least of these, you do for him. Or we love Jesus precisely through sacrificially loving our families. But St. Mary of Bethany, her story proclaims to us this morning, it reminds us that we still got to keep first things first. Mary's extravagant outpouring testifies that Jesus Christ himself is, in fact, more important than the poor. Christ is the highest good because Christ is at the center. Likewise, we could say that the scandalous nature of Mary's devotion doesn't prove that modesty is unimportant or that there's no place for cultural taboos, but rather that Jesus is more important than cultural taboos. Love for Jesus is the key to understanding Mary's shirking of societal norms, the key to understanding Francis's asceticism, and it's a key to understanding the Christian obligation to serve the poor. 
All right, so we've covered a lot of ground this morning. We began with a reflection about the sovereignty of God, the cryptic providence that we see undergirding the prophecy of Caiaphas, the piety of Mary, Mary, and the betrayal of Judas. As one commentator put it, Mary and her devotion unconsciously provides for the honor of the dead. Judas, in his selfishness, unconsciously brings about the death itself. Next, we learned to let our Redeemer be the one to answer our accuser. And finally, we learned the one absolute value in the kingdom of God, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul, and all our mind, and all our strength. And we close this morning back where we began, in the school of worship with Mary of Bethany, who poured out her vial of worship over the feet of Jesus, filling the house with the fragrance of her offering. And just as Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles when it pertains to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, so Mary of Bethany beat the apostles to foot washing. And who knows, maybe this is going too far, but perhaps in the divine mystery of foreknowledge, Mary's action inspired Jesus to wash his disciples' feet only a few days later. I mean, I don't know, is that going too far? I mean, this is kind of what prayer is, right? Either way, we see that in Mary's impropriety, there's a proper response to Jesus Christ, the right response to the grace of our creator, a picture of full-hearted adoration, and we are bid to go and do likewise in every area of our lives. Amen? Amen.